Welcome back to Making Sense of Money. I'm Andrew Pellegrini. Today is part two of our mini series about cryptocurrency and digital assets. In the first part of the series, what is crypto anyway? We address some of the basics of cryptocurrency, kind of what it is, how it works, who uses it, etc. And today we're going to dig into some of the policy and regulation of cryptocurrency and how it affects consumers like you, our listeners. I'm Nikki Giancola Shanks, your other co-host. I am so happy to have both of my co-workers back. So Jake was on our last cryptocurrency podcast, and now we also are joined by David DiCarlo. So Jake and David, can you briefly introduce yourselves? Jake, I know you were on last time, but just in case anybody also missed that, just reintroduce yourself to, to our listeners. I'm Jake Hamilton. I work at IDFPR with Nikki and David. I work in the Office of Innovation now. I work for David, and I'll pass it over to him. My name is David DiCarlo. I'm the Regulatory Innovation Officer at IDFPR. Jake and I are we're the Office of Innovation team. We focus a lot on fintech and crypto issues, and it's good to be back. It's been a while since I've been on since last year, so thanks for inviting us both today. Thank you both for joining us. And David, we'll probably put the link to the last episode that you were in, as well as the the link to the first part of the series in the show notes for our listeners, so they can get a little more familiar with how you've been on here in the past. And Jake being a former co-host, right? Um, So first, we realize that a lot of consumers that are into cryptocurrencies and digital assets use cryptocurrency exchanges. Can you tell us kind of what a cryptocurrency exchange is and what someone might do on a currency exchange? Yeah, so to answer that question, I I do want to take a little bit of a step back with it, which is when Bitcoin was invented back in 2008, 2009, part of the appeal that was, you know, around it at the time was we're going to invent something that takes banks and other financial institutions, take the middlemen out of the picture. You know, you may remember there was a financial crisis at the time. So that was part of this, you know, kind of the the aura around it was we can do financial transactions without these financial middlemen. Fasting forward to today, and there's actually a lot of you know, middlemen in the crypto world that have popped up. I think part of this is because if you think about stocks and, you know, how you get involved with those types of instruments and your investments in general, most consumers, you know, they want to use a platform that's easy to use. And so that's what's happened here with crypto is there's a bunch of different trading platforms and applications that have popped up in order to help users get into crypto. So you have these cryptocurrency exchanges that will take, you know, your money and then they'll get it into the into Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies on your behalf. So it makes it more accessible, right, to the to average consumer. Yeah, it makes it more accessible to the average consumer. You know, one aspect of this which is I do want to point out it's there are other activities that some of these cryptocurrency exchanges will well, different financial activities that they're involved in too. And so a lot of the crypto exchanges will also, you know, for instance, they may facilitate holding some dollars on your behalf. And in that case, they may be regulated as a money transmitter. But most of what the crypto exchanges are doing is not currently regulated in the state of Illinois or at the federal level. 
that's one thing that makes them very different than, than your stockbroker or a stock exchange. So can you give us some other maybe examples of money transmitters that we may already be aware of or have some knowledge of? Yeah, uh, I'll take this one. So like David mentioned, when a cryptocurrency exchange holds US dollars on behalf of the consumer, they might need to be regulated as a money transmitter. Your listeners maybe have heard of other businesses like PayPal or Venmo or Cash App who are licensed as money transmitters in Illinois. And what they do is they allow users to send money from one place to another or transmit money. There's also more traditional examples like a Western Union. You know, people think of like a wire transfer where they go to a a desk and then, you know, they put in a money order to send like money across the country. That would be like the more traditional example of a money transmitter. So what kind of regulation exists for money transmitters? There's a robust regulatory framework for money transmitters. They're regulated in Illinois and in every other state. If you want to run a money transmitter business in Illinois, you have to go through an initial application process. And if you qualify, if you meet all the requirements of that application, IDFPR would grant you a license to operate in Illinois. Then once you have that license, your business would be subject to ongoing examinations. You would need to meet certain requirements like net worth requirements. You would have to have a surety bond and do all these things that protect consumers and ensure that you're running a safe business. And then also you would be subject to regulatory consequences or enforcement actions and fines if your company breaks the rules. So you kind of have to follow the, the regulations and the rules. And if you don't, then you're subject to an enforcement. So does that type of regulation exist and apply to cryptocurrency exchanges? The way to think about where regulation stops and ends for a lot of financial products and services is that it's about what the the activity is that the company is doing with you as the consumer. So what Jake was just talking about, the money transmission, if you use some of these apps on your phone, for instance, if you're sending dollars to your friend to pay for, you know, going out to eat or something, that's regulated as money transmission. But if you hit another button on the app and flip over to a, you know, different screen where that same company may be offering to send Bitcoin to your friend for you, that is not currently regulated in the state of Illinois. So it's, so the same company is doing two different financial transactions for you. The first money, sending money is regulated. The second sending Bitcoin is not currently regulated. And just for clarity, David, you said it's not regulated in Illinois. And I know we're going to get into a little bit more regulation things in a little bit, but it's also not regulated on the federal level either, correct? Correct. At this point, there's, and we can, we can talk more of the details of it, but there's not a comprehensive you know, set of regulations for regulating crypto. So there's, there's a lot of gaps at the federal level. And then at the state level, there are as well too. So kind of based on what you've said today in this episode, as well as some of our previous conversations and other episodes around cryptocurrency, it's clear that there are some aspects of digital assets that might be regulated and some that are not clearly. Can you kind of talk about what the differences are in those regulations? Hopefully that gives you an opportunity to expand on some of the the gaps. There's different ones to focus on, but a really big one is that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission 
is the federal regulator that's in charge of overseeing securities markets. And the determination was made a while back that Bitcoin is not a security, does not meet the definition under federal or state law of a security. What that then opened up was there was nothing to fill in that gap. It's the SEC is not overseeing it. So any of the, those entire markets are, are not overseen at the federal level. And as more cryptocurrencies came about, a number of them potentially were falling into the same category as Bitcoin. But there were some that the SEC said, actually, these ones look more like a security to us. And so they've, they've taken the position that they have some authority over crypto if it falls under that definition of security. But Bitcoin's a big part of the market, right? So there's a lot of the major ones that consumers are transacting with that are not falling under the SEC's jurisdiction there. Same thing at the state level. We have state securities regulators as well, but they don't, they don't have direct authority over those markets either. And so it really is not overseen. There's no cop on the beat for Bitcoin and many other cryptocurrencies. And this is one of the many reasons why I am glad that you are here today, because I think it it gets very confusing. So along with the comparisons between what we already know regarding typical money and how that functions, can you tell us, is cryptocurrency insured in any way? No, it's not. Not in any way that consumers are used to with their banks, for example. So unlike it deposits at a bank that are insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, those deposits are insured up to $250,000. Crypto assets are, are not insured by the U.S. government. So for example, if the bank where you put your money fails, there's a process in place where the government comes in they take over that bank, that institution, and then they make sure that depositors are made whole. However, as we saw in 2022, when a handful of crypto institutions failed, nobody was able to come in. Nobody took over those institutions except in like bankruptcy proceedings. And a lot of people lost a lot of their money that they had in crypto. Some of those bankruptcy proceedings are ongoing and people are still trying to claw back as much money as they can in it, but it's, it's not backed. It's not insured like your U.S. dollars are by the government. I think that that's something I just want to make sure our our listeners really paid attention to that because I think there's some confusion that just reading different articles about it, that it is not insured. So if you lose it, if something happens, there's nothing, you're you're not going to be able to get that money back, essentially. Similar to a security. And a yes. lot of people hold crypto as securities, even if they're not like Bitcoin. We know that cryptocurrencies and digital assets are not insured and they're generally not regulated, which definitely gives off this Wild West vibe. How can this lack of regulation affect consumers? One of the major ways is when you think about all the, you know, financial crises over time and you know how regulation has developed right it's it's always about making sure that there's some oversight by the state of a financial institution and what do we mean by financial institution just at the most basic level it's somebody who is taking dollars from you know other folks putting them to, you know whether it's into investments or loans, if it's, we're just talking about a bank, right? There's, this is taking other people's money and doing something with it. And what we have been doing for 
over 100 years at this point, is making sure that there's regulation in place where you've got some oversight from, you know, the perspective of whether it's at the federal or the state level, somebody needs to be there doing examinations of these companies, putting in place rules of the road that they need to follow, and then there's oversight to make sure that they are followed. And so the the basic thing is that at this point, there isn't that oversight in you know, crypto exchanges and some of these other platforms that customers are using. And Jake pointed out a moment ago, one, one of the bad outcomes is really twofold. In the first place, if you've got that oversight in place, you can avoid the companies failing. What supervisors do is they help to point out some of the, the risks. So you can try to avoid some of those failures and make sure that they don't happen in the first place. And then also on the back end though, is what we have in place with other financial institutions is a process so that when things do start to go sideways, the regulators can try to deal with those crises as well. None of that is in place for when it comes to crypto. Yeah, that's interesting, right? So in terms of consumer complaints, because we were talking about, I know Andrew's question alluded to, how does all this lack of regulation kind of affect consumers? Is there any research? I know crypto is still very new. So are there is there any type of research related to consumer complaints increasing due to digital assets like crypto? I don't know if there's any particular Illinois specific numbers that we have. Again, I know it's very new. So any any kind of insight you can share there? Yeah, there is actually. I'll talk about some of the, the research that David and I have looked at. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau tracks consumer complaints. And in 2022, their annual complaint report showed that as the price of cryptocurrencies rose rapidly over the years, the number of complaints rose as well. You know, you can kind of see like an overlapping chart and both things are rising kind of at the same trajectory. But what was more concerning to us as regulators is that complaints about fraud and scams have continued to rise even as the cryptocurrency market took a downturn in 2022 and 2023. In Illinois specifically, there's an outlet called Chicago Reader that did a consumer complaint analysis and they found that from 2017 to 2022, Illinois residents reported over 45 million in losses to crypto scams. And that number really stood out to us. Whoa, I did not realize that number was that big, just focused on Illinois residents. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's a big number. I think one of the problems that we've seen is due to the lack of regulations, it has allowed scams and fraud to proliferate in, in the cryptocurrency industry just because there's no oversight. It's hard for people to tell who are the good actors and the bad actors in this industry when there's no rules of the road, so to speak. And, you know, you know, I've kind of used this analogy before, but like it's difficult for someone to impersonate a bank or a more traditional financial institution because they have that regulatory process in place. But that doesn't exist with these crypto institutions. There, there certainly are crypto institutions that are not out there to like perpetrate scams or defraud people but it's kind of hard to tell the difference sometimes for a lot of consumers. I also imagine that, you know, when we're talking about fraud, there are certain best practices for trying to protect yourself that can work both for traditional financial 
products and processes as well as newer technologies like the digital assets and cryptocurrencies. We can put some of those resources also in the show notes. The first thing that I thought of when you were talking about examples of how it, it's a little bit easier to defraud using or selling cryptocurrencies or digital assets is the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Howie Trade program. It basically is teaching about fraudulent securities and how to try to spot them, which would be similar with cryptocurrency type securities as well. So we can put that in the show notes for our listeners. So in line with research, what kind of research have you seen regarding disparate impact on consumers? I know that Pew Research Center has surveyed consumers. We talked about it in a previous episode in the past few years about their subjective feelings around cryptocurrency, how consumers feel about it. But I haven't seen a lot of reports on actual impacts. So if you have any additional insights, we would love to hear them. Yeah, the, the Brookings Institute, which is like a consumer advocacy group, did a study recently that examined how cryptocurrency is often marketed to minority and low-income populations as a way to build wealth and reduce wealth gap, like, you know, uh, historical wealth gaps between historically marginalized groups. However, they found in their report, what they concluded is that cryptocurrency actually has the potential to exacerbate some of those historical inequities in financial services for a variety of reasons due to, you know, volatility in the market and, you know, some of these promises that not always kept in terms of building wealth. We've also seen other studies. There's this company called Aerial Investments that's based in Chicago that they do a survey of investors every year between black and white investors. And we've seen some customer confusion between black and white investors with regards to crypto. Black investors were much more likely than white investors to think that cryptocurrency is regulated and to think that cryptocurrency is a safe investment. So that was something that was concerning to us. And then, you know, we've talked a, a lot about cryptocurrency exchanges today. That's one way that people, you know, get involved in crypto. There's also these things called cryptocurrency ATMs, or we call them cryptocurrency kiosks. We've seen a lot of research in that space recently that has showed that those ATMs tend to be concentrated in low-income and minority neighborhoods, and they're more likely to be used by unbanked and underbanked populations than these ATMs. They have pretty high fees compared to, you know, if you wanted to go to a cryptocurrency exchange and buy Bitcoin, you would pay a much lower fee on that exchange than you would at an ATM. These ATMs are used frequently by people who send remittances, maybe like out of country. And we've gone and looked at the fees that you might pay on a crypto ATM versus what you might pay at a traditional money transmitter. And and they're much lower at the money transmitters. So um, when people get involved in these ATMs, there can be a disparate impact, especially with the amount of fees that they're paying. Fees alone can, I think, not just with crypto, but other research done about fees and, you know, reading that fine print, et cetera. So that part, unfortunately, doesn't surprise me as much as as your huge number that you shared before did. So now that we're talking about a lot of these gaps, let's call them in regulation, do things stand at the federal level regarding digital asset regulation? I know... It's kind of like in the news some days, then out of the news, then in the news. So it's hard to know where things currently stand at the federal level. Congress has been talking about trying to fill the regulatory gap for a number of years now. And that's where things are, is they're still talking about it. There doesn't appear to be a bill that's going to be moving anytime soon on this. 
Now, you know, there's a couple of areas that they have tried to focus on. I mean, there's been good, you know, policy analysis work that has been done at the federal level. One area in terms of financial stability that the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is essentially like an interagency group that's run by the U.S. Treasury Department, they've looked at this area is pointing out that stable coins, which are a cryptocurrency that's meant to be designed in a way that it's pegged to the U.S. dollar so that it doesn't fluctuate in, in value and there's different mechanisms for doing that. But those are an area of particular concern at the federal level because the financial stability implications, because of the role of the Federal Reserve in the money supply and overseeing that and making sure that our money supply is stable. It's very closely related to that. So there's been a lot of policy thought and analysis and, and work that's being done. But what it boils down to is Right now, Congress is not moving anything that through legislation fills in any of those gaps. And so any of the agencies that you know, might have some you know, little bit of authority here or there, they're doing what they can with the problem that's in front of them. But at this point, there's not the legislation to kind of give them all the tools they need at, at the federal level to address these types of issues. We understand that federal regulations not exist, not very far into anything becoming law or policy. What about states? What are states doing to regulate digital assets? There's a number of states that are stepping into the this gap. One that has been doing it for a while is New York. They have had what they call the bid license in place for a number of years. Uh, and then you've seen Louisiana actually was the second state to create a comprehensive regulation over virtual currency is the way, you know, the phrase they use there, similar to New York. And then California, as of October, they're going to be doing the same. And there's a few other states like Texas that have taken not a full comprehensive approach, but they're trying, they've added some things to their money transmission regulations, actually, to make sure that any money, you know, we spoke earlier about how there's some crypto exchanges that are regulated as money transmitters. So the Texas approach is to, to build some additional regulations on top of, of that. What that leaves out is that there's some companies that aren't regulated as money transmitters, right? And so then they don't necessarily fall into that bucket. You know, when we have looked at this and how the states have been taking on the role since there is this gap and looked at you know what happened in New York over the number of years that they've been building up the program there and how successful was it in terms of the failures in the industry that we saw in 2022 with crypto companies collapsing and consumers not being able to get their money out while things are going through the bankruptcy proceedings well the upshot is that a number of those companies that were in the headlines and not able to do right by their customers, they weren't allowed to do business in New York. They didn't pass the test at, in the first place to be able to be authorized to do business in New York. So New York residents were protected by this regulatory system that's been in place for a while. Whereas states like Illinois and, and other states that, you know, are just getting this up and running now, like Louisiana and California, they didn't, you know, we didn't have those protections for our residents in place. So the lesson learned is we want something where we've got the regulatory toolkit. So on the front end, we are taking a look at whether the company is really prepared to deal with 
the risks of this business and to follow very common sense consumer protection requirements. And so that's from a policy standpoint, what seems to be working. So speaking of states, I know that this leads us to what you guys are currently working on at IDFPR. I've gotten to see firsthand and help out just a teeny tiny bit with things that you guys have needed. Can you go into what some of your own initiatives for Illinois related to cryptocurrency regulation is? I know, like I said, you guys have been working really hard on this. So anything that you would like consumers to know or be aware of about what you're hoping to do in your roles? Last year, there was a bill that we helped initiate with our sponsors in the Illinois House and the Senate, House Bill 3479. It actually was voted on in the Illinois House and approved. It had a bipartisan support. Uh, I think the vote was 90-21. And what that bill does is it puts in place this type of framework that we're talking about here. That's the rules of the road for crypto in the state of Illinois. It was a long bill. It also had in there a modernization of our money transmitter laws. There was an update so that we would be covering digital assets in Illinois and making sure our residents are protected. And then there was another aspect to modernize and try to make sure that our money transmission, we were keeping up with other states that are passing a model law, actually, that state regulators wrote and had input on. So that was all in one bill did get through the House, as I mentioned. On the Senate side, what we actually just recently worked with a sponsor in the Illinois Senate, they're going to kind of split up the same policy a little bit differently over there, it looks like. So there'll be three initiatives. One will be to do the digital asset regulation in one bill. If you know folks who want to track it, that is going to be uh, Senate Bill 3666. The Digital Assets Regulation Act will be in there. Then the money transmission modernization will be under Senate Bill 3670. And the third initiative will be Senate Bill 3765. And what that is, it's, it's an add-on to the digital assets regulation. It has some additional requirements for the, the digital asset kiosk operators, sometimes known as crypto ATMs, to you know, make sure that they're providing disclosures to their customers about you know, some of the risks right at the point of transaction. Uh, and it has some other consumer protection initiatives in there as well. So that'll be three, three Senate bills, very similar policy to what the Illinois House passed. In Illinois, each General Assembly has two years to, to take a look at all the initiatives that have been proposed. So this we're in the second, you know, beginning of the second year of this General Assembly. So you know, hopefully we'll have some updates soon on how those initiatives are moving. We'll definitely want to see what happens with those bills. So in the meantime, if you, let's say you are a consumer who finds themselves in need of help with their cryptocurrency or digital assets, where can you go? What can you do? We talked about fraud and scams earlier. If you fall victim to a cryptocurrency scam, you can report that at reportfraud.ftc.gov. Or you can file a complaint if it happened in Illinois. If you're an Illinois resident, you can file a complaint with the Illinois Attorney General's Office at IllinoisAttorneyGeneral.gov. If it happened to involve an institution that IDFBR oversees, like a bank or a credit union, you can file a complaint at IDFBR.Illinois.gov. Um, and we'd also like to point out that there are educational resources at Investor.gov on the basics of crypto. I think we, we maybe have mentioned them last time, but it's good to mention them again. 
it's on the basics of crypto assets and just some things to be aware of when you when consumers are investing in crypto. We'll make sure to put links to all of that as well in the show notes. So anything that Jake just mentioned, look for there. I am personally excited to see what happens this legislative session with all the work that you guys are doing. So like Andrea said, we'll definitely be be watching and then maybe we could do a update once we know what's happening. Along with resources, if any of our listeners find this topic particularly fascinating and they want to stay up to date on trends, happenings, regulations, whatever it might be, do you have any recommendations for them? I know we mentioned in the beginning of the episode, everything is very fast paced right now in this world. So what? how can people stay up to date, know what's going on? Yeah, so if people are interested in following along with the the bills that David mentioned, we can post a link to those, the Illinois General Assembly website in the show notes. I think I can also, I'll just give like, you know, the listeners, the sources that I go to, to stay up on, you know, news and data and and things going on in in the cryptocurrency industry. There's a couple industry, you know, focused websites that I go to for kind of general news updates and, and regulatory and policy updates. Those would be this website called theblock.co, which tracks a lot of cryptocurrency news. And then also this place called coindesk.com, which does a similar thing. There's a newsletter by Bloomberg um, that I subscribe to, and I think it's, it's pretty good. Um, you know, for just if you just want like general updates on the industry a couple of times a week to your email inbox, that's a good one. And then lastly, I'd point out, you know, one of the sources that we get a lot of like our market data from is this place called coinmarketcap.com. If you want to follow, you know, fluctuations and different prices of different cryptocurrencies or just look at kind of like overall market data, that's a really good source for that as well. Thank you, Jake. So any last thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners, David and Jake? One thing that we often talk about is that these new innovations and this technology, they are moving quickly. It makes this an interesting area to follow. We're always trying to keep our pulse on what's going on, and it is changing very quickly. And that's part of the reason why Illinois set up our office, was so that we could have a couple, at least a couple of folks to start. Hopefully, we'll continue to build, right, to keep on top of this and put forward policy initiatives and uh, reforms and work with our supervisory teams at, at the department so that we can try to be a little bit ahead of the curve. Whereas, you know, for other regulators that don't have those dedicated resources, it's it's harder, right? But even as we're dealing with these new technologies, we want to, you know, we often remind ourselves and want to remind the listeners that what matters from the regulatory perspective, what often will matter for you uh, if you're thinking about getting into these, these products or services is actually what is the company doing as a service for you? From our perspective is what are they What's the activity, you know, that they're involved in? You know, sometimes the technology can change that, but sometimes sometimes it's different technology, but it's a similar set of risks, similar set of opportunities to evaluate. And so you've got to, you know, really think critically about this area. And so, you know, if you're going to think to get involved in it, and as we think critically as a regulator about what these services really are that are being offered and what makes the most sense for you as the consumer or the investor. Thank you guys so much for being on today. You guys have been on. I'm sure you'll be on again. We love having you here. Uh, Your insights into the ever-changing world of digital assets is definitely invaluable to all of us. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us, Nikki and Andrea.
thanks so much for having us on and you know, hopefully we'll have some updates for you soon and would love to connect again in the future. Thank you both. We really appreciate all the hard work you're doing to make sure that best practices are being put in place to protect consumers. So, and for our listeners, thank you for joining us as well. Don't forget to subscribe and share Making Sense of Money, which you can find on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.